It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and I screwed up. I named my sons Milo and Emmett. Love those names. Love those kids. But if I had just had the foresight to have named one democracy and then years later he runs for office and we can literally say without hyperbole democracy is on the ballot. Joe Biden said a version of that last night. In our bones. We know democracy at risk is at risk. Okay, whether you know it in your bones or whether democracy is on the ballot or not, I kind of wonder, isn't democracy always on the ballot? Isn't that what makes the ballot the ballot rather than a slip of papers with a couple names that doesn't mean anything if you weirdly check a box next to one of the names? It's like every opening day, baseball is in the air. But yes, I understand. I think we all understand. And we all, if we're right-minded and not a very atypical listener of the gist, understand that election denialism, which is rampant in the Republican Party, is a very bad thing for the country and for our future. And it is true that Biden, by calling it out, is doing the right thing. Is he doing the effective thing for the overall project of getting Democrats elected? Many prominent Democrats who are quite good at getting Democrats elected think not. David Axelrod tweeting last night of Biden's speech, issues of democracy are hugely important at this moment and in next week's election, totally appropriate for POTUS to address them. Good, so we both agree. Oh, but then he goes on. Still, as a matter of practical politics... I doubt many D's, Democrats, in marginal races are eager for him to be on TV tonight. Okay, Axelrod certainly knows what he's talking about. They're probably not eager. Does that mean it will hurt them? No. I think one of the critiques, apt critiques of Biden is that his words don't have much effect and don't move the needle because of the quality of his words, and his opponents would say the quality of his arguments. But yeah, he could do a address as president of the United States in primetime last night, and I don't know how many people it will affect. I do think there is, however, an outside chance that he can have some effect on some races, and maybe not specifically that speech, just overall the argument, we got to protect democracy, only those races aren't exactly the ones we usually talk about. They're secretary of state races in swing states. As Politico reports, GOP nominees for secretary of state in Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, and Nevada have questioned the result of the 22 election, Politico has previously reported. And the gist has previously added Indiana, where a secretary of state on the Republican line is somewhat flip-flopped on the issue. Also Wisconsin, where Amy Lynn Loudenbeck has, quote, accepted with reservations the results of the 2020 election. That is the characterization of 538. I'm not in the prediction game, but I do think that of the Secretary of States we listed, Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, Indiana, Wisconsin, not even listing places like Wyoming, where, as we documented, that Secretary of State will be an election denying Republican. But in these states where there can be close elections, I shall not predict, but I would be surprised if the electorate comes around and backs in a massive way the election deniers. Because polling of the electorate, of all electorates, national in these states, shows that they do not believe that Donald Trump won the last election by vast majorities. Everywhere in purple states and nationally, there is a disbelief in the fundamental premise that 
Donald Trump won the election, that the election was stolen. So then you ask how come election deniers like Kari Lake are doing very well or pretty well in Arizona? And why might election deniers in Nevada or even in, this is an outside, or even in Wisconsin, why might those Republicans do well? And it is because when you elect a governor, you're electing that person to do a lot more than run an election. The governor is somewhat, to some degree, the steward of the economy, just like Joe Biden's the steward of the economy. And that's why Democrats, according to Axelrod, didn't want him up there. He didn't want to remind voters of the economy, fairly or unfairly. But Voters don't mind. In fact, they totally agree with what Joe Biden has to say about democracy itself. They're not voting on the sorry state of the ballot. They're voting on the sorry state of democracy when it comes to every office except secretary of state. So I have no prediction of who will win or who won't. I will make this flat out prediction that election denying secretaries of state in states where Republicans are going to beat Democrats, states like Nevada and quite likely Wisconsin, those secretaries of states will not do as well as regular, normal Republican secretaries of state who accept without reservations that 2020 was on the up and up. On the show today, low voter turnout. Maybe not so terrible because now that we're in the era of high voter turnout, things kind of stink. But first, Hulu's God Forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty is a tale of lies, sex, and political intrigue centering on pool boy Giancarlo Granda. The show talks about these sex lives. I said sex a lot of times. Are you interested in it? But the sex lives of Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife, director Billy Corbin, who you might know from 30 for 30 and Cocaine Cowboys, joins to talk about the movie and how Tom Arnold got involved. Billy Corbin's up next. Giancarlo Granda was 20 years old working as a pool attendant at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach. What a good job. The year was 2012. All the young women would flirt with the attractive young man. And sometimes some of the older women, too. One was in her 40s, and she propositioned him back to the hotel room. How could he say no? Well, it turns out she was Becky Falwell. There in the hotel was her husband, Jerry Falwell Jr. And that led to all sorts of scandal redounding up to the presidency. It is the subject of a new Hulu documentary, God Forbid, the sex scandal that brought down a dynasty. It premiered on November 1st, All Saints Day. That will be the last references to saints as we talk with Billy Corbin, the director of this documentary. Hello, Billy. Hello, Mike. How are you? I'm well. So one mark of a great documentary is it answers the questions I anticipate. And this one does that. And the one big question I had was, would this whole scandal have been that huge if the phrase pool boy wasn't attached to it? You talk about that or your documentary talks about the phrase. What do you think? Well, first of all, it's a real relief to hear that, <laughs> that it answered your questions. Um, you're, you're one of the first people I've talked to who's actually seen it. So, um, so thank you for that. Uh, and short answer is no. I think when the story first dropped in about 2018, it was a 
it was a pretty straightforward story, but a peculiar one, which is that the the first family of Liberty University, the largest Christian university in the country, um, with a very strict code of conduct, if you will, for the the students and the faculty called the Liberty Way, some would argue puritanical uh, uh, code of conduct. Um, here they are in Miami partnering with a former Miami Beach Fountain Blue Resort Hotel pool attendant in a $4.6 million commercial property. And a, as is wont to happen in Miami, a kind of uh, shady dispute arose. They're being taken to court. And these court documents reveal this peculiar transaction and relationship. I mean, why are the Falwells involved with this guy in this multi-million dollar real estate deal in Miami Beach? I mean, what is this? What, what the hell is going on here? And that's really all that first Aaron Rostin BuzzFeed article did was kind of ask those questions, but that was enough to just, I mean, light a light a fuse, man. And and the the blogosphere and the Twitterverse kind of took it and ran with it because the question was not the not about the real estate transaction, but what are these evangelical Christians doing with this quote unquote pool boy? And then it took on a life of its own. I mean, the memes and the gifs and the the insinuations and the LGBTQ plus blogs started to started to run with it and it and turned it into this, you know, pornographic kind of scenario. But it was a real estate transaction, which is pornography for 2022 <laughs> or the or 2018. How did the real estate transaction blow up? It was central to why we even know about us. Can you take me through the least sexy stuff and then we'll get to the sexy stuff? Well, it's, for me, it's actually really compelling because for you know we made a documentary um, called Screwball about Alex Rodriguez and the steroid scandal that brought him down. And basically what it's about is it's about how a $4,000 debt between a coked up fake doctor and his fake tan addicted steroid patient brought down the highest paid baseball player of all time. It's a very like only in Miami weird, like Elmore Leonard, Cohen Brothers, Carl Hyacinth-esque romp. And this in a way has that element. There's this kind of heist element here that involves these guys that, so Giancarlo, when he met the Falwells at the pool, um, he started this, what what he alleges is a seven-year relationship in which uh, a cuckold threesome where he would, according to him, have sex with Becky Falwell while Jerry, or her husband, would be in the corner watching and doing other things, including recording. And so uh, at some point during their travels together- right. he would, we should say recording with his free hand, but go ahead. <laughs> I think that's, that's a fair, fair assessment. Um, and they- would go to the Keys with him on vacation. They'd go to New York with him on vacation. And on one of these occasions, they asked him about getting into business together. And Jerry was, and I believe still is, a very successful and prominent real estate attorney in and around Lynchburg, Virginia. And he suggested they go into real estate in Miami Beach. Miami Beach was a favorite spot for Jerry and Becky. They came down here and they lived their best lives I mean, they just kind of, they made the most of the Miami experience, you know, just um, drinking and partying. And uh, I think that's what we want everybody to come down here and, and do. Uh, not everybody is, of course, the first family of evangelical Christianity, but everybody should come down here, engage in consensual, safe sexual behavior, spend some money, and then go back to wherever, you know, wherever they live their normal uh, lives. But um, long story even longer, they decided to get involved in this real estate deal. Giancarlo, as a 20-year-old guy in Miami, 
putting himself through college as a pool attendant, had no idea where the hell to start. But he had a friend who he hung out with all the time, whose dad used to be a big uh, real estate mogul pre-Great Recession, had fallen on some hard times. Uh, Giancarlo didn't know quite how hard uh, the times were that he fell on, and he engaged them to help them find a property and a business for them, the Falwells and Giancarlo, to buy. And what happened later is that kind of blew up in their face. And the this Fernandez duo, father and son, junior and senior, uh, threatened to sue Giancarlo and the Falwells for cutting them out of this deal and screwing them out of the deal. And part and parcel of that, they inferred that they were in possession of risque material that revealed the true nature, let's say, of the relationship between the Falwells and Giancarlo, and it was not a business relationship. And so I promise my listeners, we'll get to the sexy part, but (laughs) what I want the listeners to understand is, so as you portray it, at this point, the Falwells and Giancarlo, your subject, are still on the same side of at least this fight. How does the rift between them develop? I think there's there's certainly this sows the seeds of mistrust because the Fernandezes he brought the Fernandezes in and and they were you know questioning Giancarlo did and and the Falwells are probably wondering how the hell did we get in this in this situation here but certainly it behooved the Falwells and Giancarlo to to stay on the same side here because the these materials could have compromised uh, not only the Falwell's position, but Giancarlo, even though he's very early in his life, he didn't want to be the center of some kind of public sex scandal. Um, and, and he didn't even know who these people were when he first got involved with them uh, sexually. And he later, of course, quickly came to understand how rich and how powerful and prominent uh, they were. Um, but he also realized how potentially dangerous this could be for him to uh, well, for exactly what happened. I mean, he, his his fear was 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 well placed because what he was afraid of is is ultimately what uh, what came to pass. Yeah. So John Carlo felt at first it was uh, certainly consensual affair, although he thought it was weird. Um, at least that's how he talks about it in retrospect. But he certainly went along with it. He was uh, in his early twenties. You know, he's a age of majority. He knew what was going on. He wasn't really being tricked. It was then it dawned on him just how important the Falwells were. Even when he found out that they were the first family of evangelical Christianity, I guess that part of the hypocrisy again struck him as weird, but didn't so much bother him. But there was a point where he just started feeling really manipulated and where he also felt that they were not acting in his best interest. And what was that point? And so th- which led to how do we all know about this? Well, I, I, Giancarlo made it clear to me, you know, he was a consenting adult in this relationship, though, though bizarre. Uh, he definitely thought that it was. Um, and early on, he also told me that he didn't really view the, the Falwells as being particularly hypocritical because he didn't know them as this godly family and this these leaders of the, the, this major evangelical institution. He knew them as this fun, you know, couple from Miami Beach. Like, and they never proselytized to him. And while they they certainly profiled him, and he says that Becky told him on many occasions that he was just perfect for them and what they were looking for. And and you know, having been raised, uh, you know, conservative Republican Catholic. A schoolboy in in South Florida, um, but he never felt like they were 
uh, trying to convert him or <laughs> make him, uh, you know, join any sort of uh, no. religious group, you know, so that would he, that would really that would really be across purposes for what they wanted him <laughs> for. Yes, it would have been very odd to talk about the Ten Commandments as they were violating most of them on a daily basis. Uh, cer- <laughs> certainly. Um, but there were there were several red flags along the way. To your point, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to identify a precise moment, but I certainly can tell you that uh, I compare this story to like it's like get out meets the right just gemstones, you know, because Giancarlo was kind of drawn, honey trapped, if you will, into this situation and brought into this world of of money and power and privilege and real estate. And he's in this inner circle and he's rubbing elbows with literally the most powerful people in the entire world. Uh, and, And there are several moments along the way where he's like, maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe this isn't uh, safe. Uh, and maybe this isn't kosher, uh, if you'll forgive the <laughs> forgive the term. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and I think uh, an early flag was um, in 2012, months after he first met the Falwells. Becky invites him to Liberty University in Lynchburg for a convocation event, which uh, is an event at their in their basketball arena at Liberty. A beautiful venue holds about ten thousand people. There is compulsory attendance for students who live on campus, and it had become and and eventually over the course of the Trump era became a kind of headquarters for politicians and people in the administration to come and have a captive audience of of young people. And Giancarlo was brought there in two thousand twelve for a convocation speech by Donald Trump, then not a candidate for president, then just a you know New York real estate mogul. Um, and he witnessed the birth of the, the friendship, if you will, between uh, not only Jerry Falwell Jr. and Donald Trump, but Donald Trump's right-hand man, attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen, who was also present at that event. And Giancarlo has a distinct memory, which he recounts in the documentary, that Michael Cohen looked him up, down, left, right, sideways, and like, why is this kid in the green room? Why is he accompanying us on the private tour of this of this college? He, he he's not a student here at Liberty. What's going on? And and suddenly they're being introduced to our friend from the Fountain Blue, uh, Giancarlo Granda, and our business partner. And we're doing real estate deals together. And Michael Cohen's looking at it sideways, like he knows there's something more to this story. And that becomes a, a compelling piece of leverage later when the Falwells are being. Uh, we'll say threatened by the the Fernandezes with these compromising materials, they call their friend, Michael Cohen, the fixer, to intervene, who calls and, and depending on who you ask, threatens uh, uh, the Fernandezes and basically says, you better make this all go away and that material better not see the light of day. And in fact, it didn't. And it miraculously hasn't. So whatever Michael Cohen said, however you want to characterize it, it worked. And the, f- it, the fixer fixed it. He didn't get that that name for for no reason, you know. Um, you know, it's not just if you're in the market for taxicab medallions, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Manhattan. But uh, <laughs> you know, but but it worked. It absolutely worked. And the way Michael Cohen tells it in his book, that you know, he had scratched Sherry Falwell's back, and there would come a time during the boss's campaign for president that he would call a favor into Jerry Falwell Jr., who becomes the first evangelical leader to endorse a twice-divorced New York Democrat 
<laughs> you know, a very much a, a, a pro-abortion liberal, a man with five children from three different women, very much not a man who would fit the profile of a evangelical presidential candidate, particularly in a primary with Ted Cruz, who, right. who was the evangelical candidate. His father is a pastor. He announced his campaign for president at Liberty University, Ted Cruz did. Um, and Jerry Falwell went another way after he got that call from Michael Cohen. Well, not only is it a quid pro quo, some cultures would call the information he had compromised. Some would. I, I, I hear that's a Russian term, uh, in mm, fact. Yeah, um, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, uh, and uh, we were told specifically that Michael Cohen was still in possession of some of those materials. I'm not sure how he got them, whether it was from the, the Fernandezes or from the Falwells, but, uh, and he had shown some other people uh, some of those materials. So, um, yeah, I mean, Michael Cohen had a had a file, if you will, on the fall. Yeah. So this is all this may be swirling in the minds of my listeners. Oh, my gosh, you have sex, you have God, you have hypocrisy, you have such uh, individuals as Michael Cohen. Well, let's make it a little more weird and scurrilous. Tell me why Tom Arnold got involved. It was one of my favorite reactions to the um to the trailer when it dropped, uh, just a string of replies going, what the hell is Tom Arnold doing in this exactly, uh, documentary? Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, spoiler alert, when Tom Arnold does show up in this story, one of our interview subjects, Mark Ebner, who co-wrote Giancarlo's book with him that just uh, came out off the deep end, he actually says, what the hell is Tom Arnold doing involved in this? So Tom Arnold, you may recall, in the latter part of uh, the Trump administration uh, became a real thorn in the president's side. Uh, yeah, he, he came He came on the gist. He was bouncing off the walls. He was, uh, <laughs> he was set to expose him. Like he just knew that he had tapes of Trump saying slurs and Mark Burnett wouldn't let him out. And he got into fights with Mark Burnett. But this is, a, this is another uh, example of Tom Arnold's passions. Tom became a... Uh, but, you know, a, a self-described investigative journalist. You know, he had that show on Vice, the hunt for the Trump tapes and uh, part and parcel of of this interesting phase in his life. He started reaching out to people who uh, used to be in Trump's inner circle. You know, a lot of people wound up excommunicated. A lot of people wound up in federal prison. Some people got pardoned. Some people didn't. Michael Cohen found himself on the outs, you may recall, testifying before uh, Congress um, in federal prison, um, to himself taking on a lot of powerful people from social media and on cable news, what have you. And so Tom Arnold befriended Michael Cohen. And while he was doing that, he was secretly recording his conversations with Michael Cohen. Uh, and part of the secrets that Michael Cohen revealed to him was this story about what we've just discussed, about the Falwells, the photos, the Fernandezes, the pool attendant, the real estate transaction, and the endorsement of Jerry Falwell and Donald Trump. And so uh, this, all of a sudden, news is breaking in the Wall Street Journal, in Reuters, in the New York Times, with the Tom Arnold tapes, of all, of all things. And um, we talked to Tom about that experience. We, we use excerpts, of course, from the tapes. Uh, and, and Tom actually has a really interesting perspective on all this, not only as um, as a, an investigative journalist um, and, a, and a comedian who can appreciate the absurdity of the scenario, but himself uh, as a victim 
of of predatory uh, you know behavior and sexual assault as a child, and and he found a kinship. Uh, with Giancarlo uh, through through this experience. Giancarlo didn't see himself as a victim, but Tom had an interesting perspective that's also in the documentary. At one point during the Tom Arnold segment, he was presented at this bizarre angle where he's kind of hanging down from the top of the screen. Was that thrust upon you by Tom Arnold or was that a directorial choice? <laughs> no, that was, those were the secret recordings that Tom Arnold made were on his second iPhone. So, so while he was, while he was on the phone with Michael Cohen, he would be filming with his other iPhone. And so it didn't really matter what he was filming. He could have filmed anything because he he was really doing it just for the audio, but he put the, the iPhone flat on the table in front of him. So looking directly up his nose. And that is an angle that Tom regrets. I will tell you uh, to this day, he has brought it up to me. He has brought it up to me several times. And um, listen, I, I said, Tom, people will just be impressed to see your septum intact. So right, right. no one will notice, Tom. No one will ask me about that in interviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a very famous documentary. Sorry, I'm still, I'm still, la- I'm still laughing that, that the idea that that might have been some sort of Hitchcockian angle, you know, or like De Palma esque choice, you know. That's uh, sorry. I'm yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like not the du- not the Dutch angle. It's the you, <laughs> it's the Iowa you have angle. To, I never heard of you. That have to you have to put this in the interview just just so Tom will be like, I can't believe Mike mentioned that in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Corbin is the director of the Hulu documentary, God Forbid, the Sex Scandal That Brought Down a Dynasty. It is a, it's not one of these 18-parters. It is a taut (laughs) hour and 50 minutes, and there's a lot of quick cuts, strong rap music, chicks in bikinis, guys without their shirts on, and Jerry Falwell Jr., as you've never considered him before. (laughs) Billy, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. For all my life, had you asked the wisest people of the day, people who analyze the American political system, you could have gotten all the smart ones, the sage grouses, to agree that we have a problem. Low voter turnout. And it is true among democracies, judging by either voting age population or voting eligible population, over the past half decade, the U.S. has had lower voter turnout than our peer countries. And the worry about low voter turnout is that it is a sad outgrowth of dysfunction. That is a common complaint, in fact, throughout the world's democracies. In advance of the recent Israeli election, this was Sally Abed, an executive for Standing Together, the largest Arab-Jewish grassroots movement in Israel, and a pundit on the Promised Land podcast. What explains the fact that so many are reporting to pollsters that they do not plan to vote, including thousands and thousands who voted in the last elections and thousands and thousands more who voted in the elections before that? The answer to the question is the premise was wrong. The opposite happened. 
Voting for the just-concluded Israeli election broke turnout record 71% by early accounts. But even if you're happy with yet another Bibi-led government, you have to admit that high turnout did not reflect general satisfaction. It wasn't correlated to everyone liking the choices on the ballot, quite the opposite. It's just like in the U.S. where the general trend of meh turnout was turned on its head in 2020. Highest turnout ever. Yeah, well, most would agree what spurred the high turnout was desperation and fear, the urgency of mitigating horrific choices. Yet to listen to the sages of the low turnout era, higher turnout always correlated with civic health. Here was Rob Ritchie in the year 2000 talking about what his civically hygienic group stood for. Uh, the Center for Voting and Democracy is a nonprofit organization. Um, nonpartisan, uh, so we don't have any loaded agenda trying to, 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 to tilt things to one side or the other. Uh, we do have an agenda in the belief that it's good to have high voter turnout, it's good to have choices that, 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 that voters like, uh, it's good to have representation of, of, of what voters want. Those ideas were all lumped together, high turnout and good choices and representation of what the voters want. It's not crazy to think that they would go together. It's not crazy, but it was wrong. High turnout wasn't a sign of high satisfaction. In fact, we know now that it's more likely to be an outgrowth of discontent. These midterms are going to have high turnout. People aren't very happy. That's why. Same with the 2018 midterms. Let's turn the bastards out. Voter turnout in the year 2000 was, judged as a percentage of the voting age population. But when Richie was speaking there in the year 2000, voter turnout was, judged as a percent of the voting age population, tied for second worst in presidential history because Americans are bad. No, because things were going well. Years of peace and prosperity. Unemployment, 3.9%. The NASDAQ hit a record high in 2000. We had just stopped a potential genocide via NATO bombs without the loss of a single American life. Vote? Yeah, if I have to. Things seem pretty okay without me taking the time to vote. And even if I do, Bush, he's like the compassionate conservative, right? And gore that guy's size during debates. Everything will be fine. Here is local newscast KCRA in 1998. The California gubernatorial race had just been decided quite unclimatically. Reporter Roy Stearns was at the mic. June, I would guess that the low voter turnout will be the number one story that hits the airwaves tomorrow. And there are lots of possible causes that will be explained and blamed all the way from the open primary to negative campaigning to millionaires running again for office to no major divisions on any of the issues or any of the candidates, many of the candidates. No ultra-hot initiatives, and the list goes on and on from there, and we'll be debating that for a long time. And the question will be, what, if anything, can be done about such a low turnout? out in California. Or because things were pretty okay in California. No major divisions between candidates. The shame of consensus, I guess. You want big divisions? Well, we got big divisions today. Democrats eat babies. That's one side. I think we maybe should punish politicians who spurred the Capitol rioters. That's the other side. It's a fairly strong quibble. The lack of ultra-hot ballot initiatives. You hear that one? Yes, I would say exciting ballot initiatives normally plunge societies into turmoil. And then when that happens, they come out to vote. Here are the democracies with the highest voter turnouts today. Number one, Uruguay. 
I will say Uruguay is great. It's a functional country with a strong system of voting. They're the exception, though. Here's next on the list. Turkey, Peru, Indonesia, Argentina, Sweden, and the Philippines. Voting is high in those places because half of those countries are roused to oust a candidate or to back a strong man who threatens his opponents. In fact, two of those elections featured daughters of ex-presidents who had committed human rights abuses. The most stable democracy on that list, Sweden, saw a record turnout in the service of sweeping a neo-Nazi party into power. High turnout is highly correlative to chaos. Maybe in 1992, that wasn't the case, however. Maybe in a boring world where the neoliberal order seemed to be working, low turnout really was a sign that things weren't going so well. The goodness of the voter was taken for granted. Not showing up must have been a valid concern showing itself in a certain way. The low voter turnout isn't because people don't care or they're apathetic, but because they're frustrated. And it's not difficult to see why. That was Richard Kimball, head of Project Vote Smart, talking to the C-SPAN audience in 1992. He had an answer for this problem. It's no doubt that people are enormously frustrated. They know they're being manipulated, and they know they're being abused by this system. And it's easy to place blame on people, but it's much more difficult to try to figure a way out of this mess. The system that we're trying to help, we hope will help, is gonna be, isn't going to answer anything this year. It's no quick cure. But at least it starts the first little baby steps of giving people their own power, which is what knowledge is in a democracy. That's what information is. It's power. It allows them to start arming themselves with the most essential weapon for their own defense, and that is access to information, which is what this system is just beginning to do, taking that technology and turning it around to the voters' advantage. More information. If we give the citizenry more information, they'll learn, not be misled by those TV ads which dominate everything. That segment actually featured footage in the beginning of a Project Vote Smart call center. Here's how it worked. Operators were standing by with a stack of index cards on which the actual stances of candidates were written down, and someone could call in and ask, where does Dan Lundgren stand on amnesty for immigrants? And the operator would orient this voter who cared enough to seek out the information to the information on his card via a toll-free number. Remember, this voter, according to this model, wouldn't be showing up on election day, but he is calling in to find out where candidates really stand. Okay. This Richard Kimball blamed the murder of democracy on the unarmed man, unarmed with enough information. But now we have corrected this, I would say to a fair degree overcorrected. We have so much information, which is mostly indistinguishable from disinformation, that we're overwhelmed. And that is showing up at the ballot box. He was right. More information, more truths, lies, conspiracies, anger, explanations, deflection. It does correlate to higher turnout than we've ever had. I, for one, would prefer to go back to the old days where we wrung our hands over questions of apathy as the NASDAQ rose and the parties didn't squabble quite enough to rouse us to action. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey Wara, who maybe got the Richard Kimball reference if he saw the Harrison Ford movie, but definitely not the 1950 TV series. Senior producer Joel Patterson knows of The Fugitive, the TV series, but he never saw it. It's okay. 
I didn't either. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do you remember Not Even Mad? Really good show. You could rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. Like this, this very place. I think it's a good one. Tell me what you think. We argued a lot. Maybe too much. I am soliciting that feedback. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles.